everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast of writers sitting around drinking quarantinis or coffee and talking about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Your hosts today are John Schmidt, Chaz and Karen Brenchley, and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 49, Kate Elliott Totally Rules. <laughs> that's, that's my title because uh, my little fangirl squee is... Oh my gosh, you changed my life uh, with the Duran novels in the 70s. You had a girl as a hero for a first time. Welcome, Kate. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I, 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 now, now I'm embarrassed. Aww. Also, it, it was the 90s, not the 70s. Did I say, <laughs> did I say 70s? I've been drinking quarantinis. Well, I, meant, I meant 90s. It's fine. I was thinking about all this stuff in the 70s. Excellent. Well, we, we oh. are... Fascinating. You have a large bibliography, and we, I mean, I'm going to publish it with a list and everything else, but how did you get started writing there in the 70s then? What made you think you wanted to be a writer? I think there's no good answer to this. Why did I decide to draw maps and write stories instead of, say, design clothes or write music or become an engineer? I don't know. That's the answer. I don't know why. I just did it. I like to draw maps and I like to write stories. I started as a teenager and I just kept doing it. And eventually I got published and then I just didn't stop. So didn't you go to college specifically to study writing though? You started as a teenager, but then you undertook it in a very serious way, as I remember. Well, I mean, I did go to college. Uh, if I had to do it again, and I will say that I did major in English Lit. If I had to do it again, I would not major in English Lit. In fact, I wanted to major in anthropology, but the college I went to only had one anthropology professor, and I found him very weird. So I took a couple classes from him, and then I stopped. So otherwise, I would have been an anthropology major. So yeah, I, I yeah, I mean, I always wrote, and I wanted to write. I just because I couldn't be an astrogator and. Uh, navigate a starship uh, that writing was my second choice that is Good a choice. fair second choice when when did you publish your first novel my first novel came out in 1988 it's called the labyrinth gate it's a portal fantasy which i understand are now back in fashion they were out of fashion for a super long time like so long that everyone said that portal fantasies were dead and would never return and now Portal fantasies are back, which I think is great. Um, Labyrinth Gate was a portal fantasy about people from this world who go into another world and get involved in adventures. And then after that, I wrote a, a space opera trilogy. And then after that, I wrote more science fiction and then fantasy, and then it just kept going. I find it interesting, hi, John, here, that in it, you're using different names for things, but I have always felt what you've written about is the world next door whether or not they get there by a portal or a spaceship or five rings. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm mangling the title of that YA novel. You write some of the best designed culture, and that is a weak way to say it. Your cultures are real and different and touching in ways unexpected, like the they have real history. So... When you when you say you should would have studied anthropology if it would work, uh, I think you successfully studied anthropology because you can you you make it happen. Enough fanboying. Um, I have a bunch of young writers I talk to. What would you say is the best thing to do for them? I 
think, but well, first of all, thank you. Um, I'm going to say that for me, um, I'm, 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 I'm very flattered, but also very kind of gratified to hear you say that because for me, creating an immersive world in writing fantasy and science fiction is my, in, in many ways, my kind of my top goal. I want people to feel like they've really been there, that it's a place that could really have existed or that could exist next door, as you said. I think for newer writers, the key is not so much to imitate other people or to figure out what's working for them, but to figure out what they themselves most love about reading and what they most want to express in their own writing and then dig down to that thing. Um, in my case, it is creating this immersive world that you feel like you could be walking through. Other people might, they might be most focused on character interactions. They might really want to explain cool ideas. I, there's just a huge, um, there's just so many different ways to approach story. And one of the best things about story for me is that when I pick up a book, I'm not looking to read something I could have written. I'm looking to read something I couldn't have written. And that's what... That's the advice I would always give to new writers. Write that thing that no one else can write. I mean, I can go on about things I do specifically to try to create really immersive worlds. And, and I know that Chaz can talk about that too. Can you actually talk about that? Because I have no idea how I do it. Honestly, it's just, you know, I've been doing this for 40 years and and it's the thing I do, and I cannot sit down and analyze what it is that I'm doing. And I was wondering if you actually can. I was going to say, <laughs> Alice has a whole, and I've got to pimp it out on her page here. World Building Wednesday. So, oh, okay. <laughs> what is World Building Wednesday? I mean, it's oh, sometimes on Twitter. I'm trying to make this a weekly thing, but I don't always make it. Um, where I just talk about world building once a week. You know, it's easy to talk. And I don't think, I think you can teach in the sense that you can get people to think, Chaz. That's what I think people can do most of all. Just get them to think outside, maybe how they're, maybe kind of the box that they're in. Mm -hmm. And and if they do that, then maybe they'll stretch themselves or maybe they'll look at things in a different way. I, I talk a lot about, getting people to ask questions about the answers they're always already giving themselves. So if they are writing about, you know, a man walks into a room, well, why is it a man? And why is it a room? And why is it walking? And are there other people there? And who's around them? What's the relationship between these people? Because it's that, it's that status quo thing. If you just default to the status quo, you're going to create, it's easy to write in these status quo ideas about how stories go. But once you start questioning, why is it a man? Why couldn't it be a woman? Why couldn't it be something else? It, you, I mean, that's, that's, a very, that's a very basic beginning question. But once you start to push those boundaries, and, and whose story are you gonna tell? And I wanna talk actually briefly about the, um, the Daniel Fox book set in fancy Taiwan, that there is a sequence in the middle of that book where a town, a city, is awaiting 
their their side of the civil war of the nasty civil war has lost and an army is coming and it's gonna sack this city because this was the last kind of the last holdout that's how i remember it and there's a whole long sequence from uh, the point of view of an old an elderly woman who is trying to get herself and her daughter out of this city with these rampaging troops and i still think about that sequence first of all because it's so it's it's stunningly written it's unforgettable it's horrible but also because it's from her point of view in a way that totally respects and follows her point of view as a person worthy of having a point of view which was rare at that time to see a character like that who wasn't a svelte courtesan or who wasn't a heroic man or at best maybe kick ass you know the swordswoman but she's just an ordinary woman and so it was so striking to see that and that itself is a way of challenging the status quo by saying this story is also worth telling thank you you just made my wife very happy I was going to say, for those that forgot uh, many, many episodes ago, Daniel Fox is Chaz. It's one of his uh, pen names. So way to turn that can back on him. I'm remembering titles. Can someone please rem- remind me of the title of the first? Um, the first the first Daniel Fox book is called Dragon in Chains. Thank you. Um, and it's followed by, I can remember this, can't I? She just told you. Uh, <laughs> Jade Man's Skin and Hidden Cities are the, uh, makes the trilogy. Yeah. So it's a question we love to ask people. It sounds like you're a bit of a plotter in that you ask yourself a lot of questions. So are you, are you more of a plotter or a pantser when you sit down and really start zooming on the writing? Uh, yes and no. I'm not really a plotter or a pantser. I don't really divide it. I don't see my writing process that way. I like the old Ted Williams once called it the Hawaiian Islands method. This was long before uh, I moved to Hawaii, but he, uh, but I liked that at the time. And now I feel like it was like some kind of predestination. I don't know, but it's like, I can see the parts of the Island that are above water. So I know points that I'm aiming for, but when I move between the islands, I have to go underwater. So the process of writing I discover things that I can't see yet. So it's a kind of a combination of things. I, I almost call myself more of an architectural writer. I kind of like can see the framework. I have to build a framework, but then the, 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 the interior decoration comes later. So there's a lot of stuff I just, I discover stuff along the way, but I also have to know my scaffolding. Do you write anything down longhand to do it out or is it all on computer or? Do you use any particular tools? Like, are you a Scrivener gal or? You know, I really like the idea of Scrivener and I own it, but I never use it. I tend to write, handwrite notes, and then I get frustrated with them. And then I try to write them in better, more in a more orderly way on the computer. And then I get bored of doing that. And then I go back to handwriting and then I write things on post-its and then I get a whiteboard and try to block things out. And then I'll get a big piece of paper and I'll write another one. So basically I'm constantly doing things mostly by hand. Um, Cause I'm kind of analog, but there's like, 
like five or six different versions, none of which are complete. So a lot of it maybe is just I use the I use the paper and pencil or the whiteboard to it's like by trying to organize it there. I think I just organize it better in my mind. So unfortunately, I, I do a lot of it in my head and I'm trying to get more of it down on paper, but it's never worked in the past. So, <laughs> so I'm not optimistic that I'll work like that. Like I know people who outline the entire book. They spend like two months outlining and they have a very complex, nuanced outline. And then when they go to write it, they just kind of write right through it. And so the writing process is really fast. And I, I envy that, but I don't think I'll ever do it manage to do that i remember when when we used to live closer together and and i'd like run into you on occasion i remember particularly the crown of stars books but some of these others where you would well, actually uh, the duran novels which have a special place in my heart but you would come up with you would you would get this look you have this look okay and i can see i can see your your mind is 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 just kind of somewhere else and then you'll kind of come up with a question or you'll start describing something and and I can see that it you it is like an island has popped up out of the ocean and I always thought that was just fascinating to watch you do that because then when I finally see the finished work I'm like oh that's what she was thinking about oh that's really cool so yeah yeah I can see what you mean because it because I, I've watched you do it um, and I think that's very cool you know, one of the hardest lessons I've had to learn over the years is I keep thinking that there's a better process, and then I have, I'm slowly becoming resigned to the fact that I have my process, and that's my process. It, it, can, be, it can be frustrating and hard, but ultimately it seems to work or be the way I work. Is it, is it always the same then? Yeah, yeah. I think I, I, yeah, I mean, I have like, I am working on book two of um, Unconquerable Sun of, of that trilogy. And I can like see all these things in my head. It's like this luminous galaxy floating out of my reach. And I can see this stuff, but I'm trying to wrestle it down from there onto the page. Yeah. So that kind of process is going on all the time in my, in my head. And one of the most interesting things, I, a good example of this are the Cold Magic books, the Spirit Walker trilogy, is that I'll have vision, I'll have like scenes in my head or encounters in my head. Like these two are going to have a discussion on a bench. And I, and the original way, there is a scene in book two of Cold Fire of the Spirit Walker trilogy in which the main character, the, the protagonist and the love interest have a discussion on a bench. But I first imagined that scene on a different bench in a different place with a slightly different focus. But I eventually, and that didn't work. I had thrown out a lot of stuff. And so that went with it. But the bench conversation stayed. So that was kind of like a, it's like an anchor point. Even if it was, even if it didn't come out exactly like the way I first imagined it, the bench discussion scene was an anchor that had to be there. So part of it is adaptability and figuring out which are the which aspect of a scene is the anchor and which you can change. Did that make sense? Absolutely. Um, so how much do you throw out of what you've written in a first draft? Uh, it depends on the book. Okay. I've had books where I've thrown out a lot, and I've had books that are actually pretty tight. The second and third Geron books. The whole the the it's it's really one novel called The Sword of Heaven and it's published as two titles, um, An Earthly Crown and His Conquering Sword. But I had thought about that book for ten years before I wrote it, and 
I basically like wrote that book and it must be 250,000 words total. I mean, each book split in half. I mean, not each book, but total. I wrote it in nine months or 10 months and I added one scene to it, I think. And then whatever line editing I would have done, but I didn't really have to change anything about that book because I just knew it so well. On the other hand, the next book I wrote and I can think of a couple of other books that were similar was, or Cold Steel was another one. I wrote a lot throughout a lot, wrote some more throughout some more. So it just depends on the book. And I'm not sure what the difference is. Sometimes it's like I have to change direction and what I'm trying to do. So if I absolutely know what I'm trying to do, like, again, another example would be um, the third Crossroads book, Trader's Gate. I, I knew exactly what I had to do. I knew exactly where the end point was and exactly how I had to get there. And so that book was actually pretty easy to write. So I think it, it just depends on the on the book. So you see yourself as more the narrator then? Or, or, or do the characters kind of just tell you what they're doing? Do they ever surprise you? Well, characters do surprise me. I don't, I don't think of them as, I, I think of my unconscious as writing the book. I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't feel like I'm the narrator through which the book is flowing. I feel like I'm writing the book. But I feel like if I let my unconscious, if I kind of unmoor it, it will go places that are more interesting than what I could do if I like fixed on my set footsteps, because my set footsteps kind of get stuck. In a, in a pattern I'm used to, but if I kind of unmoor that back of my head, it'll kind of, that boat will float away and go to new shores, hopefully, and then stuff will like pop up that I never expected. So that's kind of half the fun is when things kind of hit you, at, you know, blindside you and suddenly you go, whoa, whoa, that would totally work. And you didn't realize it until that moment. I don't know, Chaz, what do you, but what about you? Yeah, yeah. Um, I was just going to say, do you get that thing where you brought a character in at the beginning just because they were interesting and you get towards the end and realize that they've done nothing, they've just been there. But suddenly here is this whole thing that, that actually they were put there to do. It's I, the most exaggerated version of that that I know in my own work. I had a character who, you know, I, I'm, I'm a pantser. I make things up as I go along. Um, I am am traveling from Newcastle to Istanbul. I like to know the first line and the last line and the title. And and apart from that, it's just, you know, it's just the journey, which I think the author takes hand in hand with the reader. But there was this this one book I wrote, um, it's called Paradise. At the beginning, there was this particular character who featured in a very early chapter and was just around throughout the book and didn't really do anything. And... Halfway through the book, um, there's a chapel that burns down and somebody dies. And it didn't really, the important thing was that somebody died. Um, it didn't really matter who set fire to the chapel. It could, there were two equally likely candidates. And, and I thought, I'll figure that out later and carried on writing because that's what I do. And, and, and I got to the end of the book and realized I still hadn't said whether it was person A or person B. And the thing was, they were both equally likely and there was no reason to go one way or the other. And that really upset me. So I went for a walk to think about it. And there was this third character who had been there all the time waiting for something to do. And it was so obvious that, that they'd been the one who set fire to the chapel. That. Ever have that? <laughs> yes. Yeah, um, that's like one of the greatest 
things about writing. It doesn't happen with every book, but when it does, it's just like, I can't explain it. It's so great because your mind made connections somewhere in that bat, in that morass, in that forest or whatever is going on back there. I don't know. And again, it's exciting because I feel like that's a point where I couldn't have made those connections if I'd been thinking about it. That's one reason. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. I'm just agreeing with you. Carry on. Yeah, no, I mean, that's one reason that I'm not, while I do some, I do some world building before I start writing, because I kind of want to know where my ground is, but my world building kind of goes hand in hand with the characters, because to me, because to me, the characters and the world have to fit. I can't pull a character out of one book and stick them in another book if it's a different culture, because then they, if I've done my work right, yeah, they won't be there. They won't be right there. But, um... I couldn't like get down my, and I'm not, I'm not criticizing this as a method, but for me personally, I couldn't sit down and write my three notebooks of world building and then write a story in it because I find that writing a story, I discover things through the writing. And like you said, the writing itself is the journey. And when I, I discover things that I would never have figured out or thought up if I had just created, if it wasn't, if it wasn't mixed with the character and the plot. And I love it when that happens. I I was going to say, if you don't mind me seizing on something, um, you said you write and write, and then sometimes you have to throw it out, and then you write and write and throw it out. That can be super hard for new writers. (laughs) Like, oh my God, look, I finally got it down. It's hard to come to that realization that you may have to scrap that whole chapter, that beautiful, you know, 500 words you wrote that day when you were having super hard time focusing, but you did it, and now you have to let it go. How did you learn to let it go? Well... I will say that I'm better and better at letting it go because now because I know there are moments. You know, when I was a newer writer, it was much easier in some ways to write first draft because the internal editor wasn't very loud and I didn't, there wasn't a lot at stake in a sense of feeling like, oh, I got to pay my rent or what if people don't like this book or whatever. That, that, after you've been in, for me, after you've been in the business a while and publishing for a while, you begin to feel more of a burden about how will it be received and what's going to happen next. But when I was first writing, it would just be like, oh, I'm writing this story. Oh, it's so great. I'm going to do this, you know, because I was pretty much clueless. But now I know that there's more words where those came from. Um, but I also learned two other really important things. One is that if it's not working, you just got to let it go because you've got to make it work. Uh, Cold Steel, I probably wrote, I don't know, 100 pages of the opening, maybe more, that I just had to ruthlessly cut because they didn't work. They didn't work because it was too long and I had to get the characters to Europe faster. They were in the Caribbean, you know, and I couldn't, I couldn't go off on this whole tangent because I only had one book to finish the trilogy. So I had to make that decision and say, you know what, this isn't helping me get to where I need to go. I'm just cutting this stuff. But it turned out that some of that stuff I had written, I was able to repurpose later. So there's a scene where the main character is walking through a town and it's, you know, it's uh, there's people, an army is kind of assembling, there's people with wagons and there's soldiers moving around and whatever. And I was able to use a lot of that, of that particular scene. I was able to lift it and just change it, revise it a little bit for later in that same book in a different place because the context was similar 
She's walking through a town where soldiers are assembling about to march out. So part of it is I just learned to reuse it where I can. Um, and then, and then, yeah, so those two things. Sometimes you just, you, but sometimes it just doesn't work. And I think a lot of that is fear that, a lot of the fear of cutting it is, A, I put much work into it, but you've got, I mean, writers have all that work in them. They've got a lot. We have this an infinite number of words, not actually an infinite number of words, but, you know, technically, theoretically. I, I've got a thousand monkeys in me. I think I can write Shakespeare here, here shortly. So there's, there's something that has been uh, coming up for all of us in our last few weeks of podcasting. It is podcasting in the time of cholera and writing right now is super hard for a lot of people. How do you, how are you managing it? Do you set aside time every day? How do you keep yourself focused? Well, I keep myself focused by looking at my mortgage payment. You know, that's beautiful. <laughs> like, I like to eat. Um, I would feed my dog before me, but yeah, I like to eat. You know, I've been writing for so long that this is a job now, and I don't always have good days. I don't even always have good weeks. I think that's important for everybody to hear, that, that even pros get the blues sometimes. And You know... Actually, I just said this on Twitter that I that one of the most frustrating things about writing is yeah is that I thought it would get easier, but that the better you get, the harder it gets. I think partly because you challenge yourself more, partly because you can see where the problems you need to fix are, and also because as you begin to know how to fix things and to get better at fixing things, you have to deal with that balance between your discovery writer that need to discover the story to make that journey, as Chad says, in that first draft, where it's going to be all over the place, where it's going to have terrible sentences, where it's going to have awkward dialogue exchanges that you know you're going to completely rewrite, but you kind of have to force yourself to keep going through all that because when you get a complete draft or even a complete zero draft, then you can see the shape of it and start understanding the story. If you're that kind of writer, a writer who outlines extensively ahead of time will have a different experience. But, you know, there are days when I just write really well because I can get all those voices out of my head or because I absolutely know what the scene needs. And there's days where if I write 100 words, I'm, for, you know, that's as much as I can do. And then I beat myself up and then I worry and stress. And I, I think it's just part of the process, unfortunately. And I think part of it is just learning to live with it. Yeah, and the, the further along your career path you get does not mean that you beat yourself up any the less, I find. In cu and coupling that with the fact that it does, as you say, it gets harder, is possibly the only known craft where the better you get, the harder it gets. Why do we ever choose to do this in the first place? Because you can't help it. <laughs> you don't have a choice, and I disagree on the craft, but I don't want to argue the point. <laughs> oh, go on. I have, Ch Chaz, I have no other marketable skill at this point in my life. I mean, seriously, I have no other, I, I mean, I could, I could work at Starbucks. You know, that's maybe. kind of all of our retirement plan is to run, you know, a small coffee shop and then sit around drinking said coffee, possibly we're, with a liquor license. We're hiring license. at Home Depot, but red coffee is the best coffee. <laughs> red coffee yeah. is the best coffee. There's this bit, I'm actually wearing the Red Coffee is the Best Coffee t-shirt as we speak, thank you, Jeannie. Um, <laughs> Me too. There is, 
there's a bit in um, Gordy Knight where Harriet says, yes, of course I could scrub floors instead of being a detective novelist. I would scrub floors very badly and I happen to write detective novels very well. That's the thing. This is, this is our task. That makes perfect sense. All right. I'm going to, you have a new book coming out, uh, Gender Swapped Alexander the Great in Space. Really? <laughs> yeah. This is very exciting. <laughs> it is very exciting, and I want to hear more about it right now. Yes, please. What? I mean, one of the best things about that pitch is that it is positively exactly what do you get in the book. It is gender-swapped Alexander the Great in space. Um, I, I, I'm not sure what to say. I had, I, I mean, I spent... Two years, three years writing this book between revisions and changing publishers. So I can't say that I had fun doing it, but I like the result. I'm proud of the result. I think it's a good book. Is it? A- I say good book. Um, to me, good book is, is praise, not, you know. Um, and I had a lot of fun with Easter eggs, and I had a lot of fun swapping the um, story and putting it into space. I, I, I would, I don't know, I don't know what else to say. Well, I, I just tell us, is it available pre-order on Amazon? And if so, I will put the link up on the website. It is available. Um, it's published by Macmillan by Tor Books. You can find Unconquerable Sun on macmillan.com where it has both an Amazon link and links to other places like the, the indie bookseller and Barnes and Noble, probably the Kindle, there will be an audio book. So there'll be that. It will be coming out in the UK, but I can't talk about that yet. And that's fantastic. It, well, we will put at least the, the main on seven, seven, 2020. <laughs> that is a great date. <laughs> States. We will put the link for that one and any of the ones I can find, along with all the other pieces we talked about on our website, which is www.writersdrinkingcoffee.com. You can also find us on Facebook or Twitter. We answer email and messages. Um, If you write, Alice, can we talk you into answering a question if any of our fans have them later? Uh, Sure. That'd be fantastic. Thank you so much for being with us. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre McGaffey Schween, and our sound engineer and backup web spider is David Welsh. Our intro music is Pretty Made Milking a Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with a Morning Person, both by Michael Engberg. You can hear more from Michael Engberg on manyheadsmusic.com. Our podcast sponsor is Jackal Designs, enabling you all to buy cool WDC swag, including Red Coffee is the Best Coffee t-shirts. And hey, thanks a lot for listening. 